0: I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to Psalm number 73, and I want to invite you to grab one of the Bibles that we've provided for you, if you don't have one of your own. If you're here this morning interested in Jesus, not sure exactly what it means to follow Him, I especially want to welcome you, uh, as Shaka did earlier, and say thank you for coming, and we'd love to talk to you about who He is. I'm going to be speaking some about Him just now, here in the next half an hour or so, but we'd love to follow that up with more conversation later, and we'd love for you to take the copy of the Bible that we've provided here at the Center of Each Isle. Make that your own. Take it home with you. We'd love to have you read some of it and talk to you about what you read there. We're going to be uh, focusing this morning on Psalm 73. And while you're turning over to it, I want to set it up for you. It's a psalm about envy and how to overcome it. I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with envy. I realize that's not a new problem either. It's the climax of the Ten Commandments, those are thousands and thousands of years old. They end with don't covet, don't covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife, or your neighbor's servants, or your neighbor's ox or donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's, to which list we might add your neighbor's outfit or your neighbor's hair day or your neighbor's fun-filled itinerary or even your neighbor's happiness. Envy is not a new problem, that's for sure. But we have definitely got new ways of feeding it, don't we? new obstacles to overcoming it. I recently read a uh, New Yorker story in which a character described those mom blogs, you guys know about those. Those mom blogs in which a character described those mom mom blogs as acts of violence against women. I thought that was pretty much spot on. Social media as blood sport. Survival of the fittest of the fittest. I I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with envy. And I don't know anyone who who, who actually enjoys what it feels like to envy someone else. It feels awful. It steals joy and the legitimate blessings that each of us have in our lives. I don't know anyone who doesn't struggle. I don't know anyone who likes it. So what do we do about it? Psalm 73 is here to help us. Psalm 73 opens a new book of the Psalms. The Psalms are divided, there's 150 of them, they're divided into five books. And we don't always know exactly why the books are divided up the way they are. Each one has a different number of Psalms in it. They don't have an obvious purpose to the, to the way they're divided up. Uh, there's all sorts of different theories and you could go get yourself a PhD trying to argue for uh, one, way, one reason or another that they're organized the way they are. And typically we don't know, but one thing we do know is that this book, book number three, it's the shortest and darkest of all the books of the Psalms. There's not that many psalms in it, but the ones that are in it focus on some very troubling themes. It fits really well in a period of Israel's history when they were under the thumb of one dictatorship after another. When they looked around themselves and what they saw was wickedness, prospering. What they saw was themselves helplessly subject to people who had no place for God in their lives. So they looked around, they saw where they were, and they wondered, what does this mean for all the things God has told us are true? For all the things he's told us about himself and his commitment to us. This book is full of what we've been calling psalms of lament, complaints, why are things the way that they are? And Psalm 73 is the first in this book of Psalms, and it sets the tone for what's to come. It's sort of like a lament. It does talk about how hard it is to see the wicked prospering around you while you have to struggle for everything you have. It's also sort of like a wisdom psalm. We've been talking some about those. Wisdom psalms are about what's true in the world as it is. This one's sort of like a lament, sort of like a wisdom psalm. It starts out like a a kind of fist shaking against the prosperity of the wicked. But the interesting thing about this psalm, what you're going to see when you read through it in just a moment, is that even though it is a kind of complaint about the prosperity of wicked people, the real bad guy in this psalm is the psalmist himself. This isn't mainly a psalm that's upset or angry about the prosperity of wicked people around him. It is mainly a psalm about his own inner bitterness, the rot in his soul that took root and spread when he forgot what was true about God. And took his cues from what he could see. His own envy. His overvaluation of the material things that were going on around him. That's what he laments in this psalm. And I think it's put here at the top of book three. Because Israel needed to know. When they went into the dark places they go in the rest of this book of Psalms. They needed to know at the top how to think about what they were experiencing how to properly evaluate the, the, the different goods that God had put in their life compared to the goods that he had put into the lives of the wicked. I'm going to say a lot more about this uh, in a moment, but I want to before we go any further, I want to read the entire psalm so you can get a sense of the whole. Then we're going to break it down together and try to see what God will say to us through it this morning. I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's word now, if you would. While I read from Psalm 73, I'm going to read the entire psalm. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's what he saw. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. So, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. It's a psalm about envy and how to overcome it. I want us to unpack it together. First, I see in the problem of envy, then the source of envy, then the solution for envy. And those three categories, are broken down for you on the worship guide you got when you came in here, if you want to track with me and take some notes along the way. I want to just start by making sure you could see what, what hopefully came through pretty clear as we were reading through it, that envy is the problem here. This is not a psalm that's mainly about the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. It's not mainly about a man who doesn't understand why things are the way they are, crying out for more justice. There are psalms like that. This isn't one of them. This one's mainly about his own envy of what the wicked had. Because seeing that envy's the main problem sets us up to see the conclusion that he comes to at the end and how revolutionary and powerful it is for us. Did you notice he started out the psalm with this opening statement on God's goodness to the pure in heart? That's verse one. And he's going to end in exactly the same place the goodness of being near to God. But in the in the middle, in between, the psalmist gives us a remarkably honest confession of what it took for him to get there. He was not always so sure. That God was good. There was a time when his feet almost slipped. And the reason his feet almost slipped was his envy over the prosperity of the wicked. At the very beginning of our series together, Matt Givens preached on Psalm number one, which sets the table for all the rest of the Psalms. I see Psalm 73 as a kind of response to Psalm number one. So Psalm number 1 says there's two ways you can live. You can be righteous or you can be wicked. If you're going to be righteous, then you know the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever the righteous person does, he prospers. That's what Psalm 1 promises. But it says the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff that the wind just blows away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, Psalm 1 said nor sinners in the gathering or the assembly of the righteous. There's two ways you can go. The way of the righteous prospers, the way of the wicked doesn't. That's what Psalm 1 says. And you could almost imagine the guy who wrote Psalm 73 growing up here in that psalm, memorizing it in Sunday school, whatever you want to imagine. This psalm was in his mind. He had been taught that this was true. But now... Now he looks around him and it looks like a sham. The wicked don't prosper. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. That's what he's heard from Psalm 1. But look how he describes the wicked here. Here's what he sees in the wicked. Verse 4. Their lives are easy and pain-free. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're healthy and strong. They aren't in trouble as other people are. They don't face hardship. They aren't laid low by life like others. And and they take credit for all that they enjoy. They assume they have what they have because they deserve and have earned what they have. They think that they are a cut above everybody else. That's what he means, I think, when he says in verse 6, that therefore, because they have these carefree, trouble-free lives, they wear their pride like a necklace. Most of us try to hide our pride, Right? We try to stuff it down and maybe only let it come up through a kind of humble brag. But not them. They've got their pride on as a necklace. Their pride is their bling. They want you to see it. They press their advantage with violence against the weak. And they shake their fist at the heavens. They scoff. Their tongue struts through the earth, verse 9. And what are they saying? How can God know? (laughs) Where is He? Is there knowledge in the Most High? I don't think so. I am God, is what they imply. So, verse 12 sums it up. Behold, these are the wicked. These are the wicked. I see your Psalm 1, and I raise you Psalm 73. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And so verses 13 and 14 give us his honest confession. Like seeing what he sees, here's what he concludes. All in vain have I kept my own heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Look, I stayed away from the paths of the wicked. I didn't sit in the seat of the scoffer. I didn't go in the way of the sinner. Look where it got me. All in vain. For all the day long, I've been stricken and then rebuked every morning. Now, friends, you might not be preoccupied by the prosperity of wicked people. Maybe you are. There's plenty of that to be preoccupied with. If you think about the lives lived by by those who are trafficking in human slavery, by those who are producing pornography, by drug dealers or corrupt politicians or whatever, there's plenty of wicked prosperity to look at and wonder about, but but don't let the fact that you may not be preoccupied with that keep you from sitting where the psalmist is and feeling the weight of his concerns. Because this is this psalm, again, is not first and foremost a complaint against injustice. There are psalms that are like that. This isn't mainly one of those. It's not a psalm that's angry about the wicked getting all the goods in life. This psalm is a confession of a longing for what other people have. He doesn't want to see the wicked get what they deserve, he wants what the wicked have. That's what makes this a psalm, not just about injustice, but about envy. Envy as a resentment that someone else has something you don't have, but wish you did. That's the problem here. That's envy. From here, we get a little taste, though, of where envy comes from. And this is where I want us to really drill down, the source of envy and the solution. This is where this psalm that starts out as just an honest confession of this guy's sin turns into a power tool for us in our fight for contentment and gratitude. So envy, we've said, is the main problem this psalm is about. Not, not philosophical questions, not moral questions about God and God's purpose. It's about envy. And envy at its source is a perspective problem. That's what I want to make sure you notice this morning. Envy at its source, what envy is, is a perspective problem. That's what comes out as he starts to unpack his transformation. He's been real honest with us about where he was, about what he saw, and why it bothered him. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 15 and following, it turns into his transformation story. It's a psalm with a before and an after. When he was consumed by envy, the problem was with what he saw. That's what he told us in verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he was basing his whole understanding of the world based on what his eyes could see. His transformation that he tracks for us here in verses 15 to the end of the psalm, it comes not in any kind of change at all to his circumstances. Nothing about his life changes. What changes is what he sees. He sees things in a new way. There's a new light on his circumstances that comes with a brand new perspective. A source of envy is, is a perspective problem. I want to I show you two things that are always there every time we envy. Two problems in our perspective on life and what it brings to us that are always there every time we deal with envy. Here's the first one. Envy always comes from, it's always sourced in, overvaluing what somebody else has. Okay, that's number one. What's the source of Envy. Well, it's a perspective problem, and it's a perspective that's off in two ways. First, overvaluing what somebody else has. Anytime you envy, that's what you're doing. And that's what the psalmist came to realize. He comes to realize that the things that he wanted aren't what he thought they were. That the lives of the wicked aren't actually so comfortable or easy. They aren't so removed from trouble. They aren't unseen or unknown by God. That if you zoom out a little bit, you see where wickedness really does get you. Verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. All the things they enjoyed, the things he envied, wanted for himself, are just a mirage. In fact, he he uses language like that in verse 20. Like a dream when one awakes. All their prosperity is just dreamlike mirage. That's what it is. When you rouse yourself, O Lord, to set the record straight on the great day of justice, and that day, we'll see them for what they really are phantoms, holograms, lacking in all substance, unreal. They seem fat and comfortable and prosperous, but their lives are a breath that evaporates grass that just withers and falls. Are you envying someone else's beauty? Wicked or not? Just think about what age is going to do to the features that you wish were yours. The skin that's so smooth and so tight now will soon be wrinkled. Those muscles They will grow soft and weak. Those shiny white teeth will yellow and rot and fall out. That figure you wish you had, even if it doesn't expand over time, it will begin to soften and droop. You are envying a mirage, a dream, a phantom. Will you envy their possessions? We hear here a couple weeks ago for Psalm 49. Remember what Psalm 49 says about the possessions of wicked and righteous alike in this life? We may pile them up. We may project them to the world. We may hold on to them with a big bear hug using both arms, but they are never ours to keep. So, So you envy someone else's possessions or their money. Do you realize... You're envying the fact that they're going to have a bigger estate sale than you will? Maybe you envy their fame. The fact that everyone seems to love them. Friends, in a hundred years, they'll be forgotten. Envy always comes from overvaluing what won't last. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I want to invite you to think about the message of this psalm and to genuinely consider it. Nothing that you have now is yours to keep. Nothing. Nothing that you may accomplish or acquire in the rest of the years you have under the sun will be yours to keep either. The Bible says that, that the fact that nothing you have is yours to keep is not arbitrary it's on purpose. It's a judgment from God against you and against me for our treating ourselves, behaving as if what we have was ours in the first place. As if we don't have everything we have as a gift undeserved and free from His hand. We deserve Because we have treated God as if he weren't the source of every good thing in our life and in this world, we deserve to be cut off from him. To lose our connection to everything good and right and true and beautiful. And that is what death does. That is the judgment this psalmist sees in the future. When God rouses himself to destroy all those who are unfaithful to him in a moment. The Bible's message is that though you may seem or even feel prosperous now, you are not. But you can be. Because in Jesus, you can be righteous. The message of the gospel is that even though we've rejected God at every turn, even though we've treated all the good things He's put in our lives as if we were responsible for them, Even though we've loved the things he's given us more than we loved him. Even though in that sense we've made ourselves his enemy. God has made peace with us if we will have him. Through Jesus his son. Who came and lived a perfect life desiring only God above all else. Who died a death that wasn't his to die, it was ours. And who was raised again from the dead, living even now as proof that all of our sins that we will ever put on him have been paid for once and for all. You can have something that won't just evaporate like a dream if you'll have Jesus. Believer, have you ever sometimes wondered how you might talk to other people about Jesus when it seems like they have everything? I know that's been a barrier for me sometimes. In my evangelism, some some people that I really want to see come to know Jesus, but they really do seem to have everything. They seem to have a carefree life that I wish I had. They seem happy. They don't worry about money. They have a lot of friends. People really do love them. Sometimes, when you look at someone who's not a Christian and you see them living that kind of life, you can wonder, like... How do you share Jesus with someone who seems to have everything? Maybe Let me put another point on it. How do you share Jesus with somebody who seems to have it better than I do as a Christian? More popularity. More success. More disposable income. Better tastes and food and clothes and music. A better sex life. A more carefree and maybe on the outside more happy life. What do I offer them that they don't already have? Sometimes we can feel that, can't we? This psalm is a reminder to you, friend, as a Christian, that when you engage people with the gospel, and you tell them about Jesus, you were never going to be offering them more popularity, or more success, or more disposable income, or better sex, or anything resembling a carefree and easygoing happiness. That was never what we were offering anybody. What we have to offer is God. Himself, near to you, for you, upholding you, and ultimately providing you a life that won't end, a dream that you won't wake up from in terror. It sets up the second thing that we need to know about envy. So it comes from overvaluing what someone else has, always. Anytime you envy anybody, anywhere, you're envying something that isn't as valuable as you think it is. Here's the other source of envy, though. Another part of the perspective problem. Envy always comes from undervaluing what it is to have God's presence in your life. Envy comes from two sources. Perspective problem here. A skewed perspective on the value of what other people have always comes from overvaluing it. And it comes from a skewed perspective on the value of what it means to have God and His presence in your life as your possession. As the psalmist's perspective starts to shift, he realizes that he's forgotten something even more important than the fact that the wicked will one day have their hubris exposed for what it is. That's important, but that's not the end, and it's not as important as what he realizes next. He realizes that he's forgotten what a precious treasure it is to have God's presence in your life. When my soul was embittered, he writes... Verse 21, when I was pricked in heart, embittered, that's a good way to describe what envy feels like, isn't it? This churn, this rot, this ugh, this icky ugliness that we hate but can't shake. When my soul was there, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, he says. Not thinking, only wanting, only reacting, only demanding. Driven by physical desire with no spiritual understanding. I think that's what he means by this beast reference. When I was embittered, I was like a beast towards you. And then verse 23 gives us our transformation. Nevertheless, even though I was like a beast towards you, ungrateful, forgetful, despite how I treated you, I am continually with you. And you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Whatever else may be true of my life now. And after this life, when this breath of a life is over, after this, you will receive me to glory. Those who are far from you shall perish, verse 27 reminds us. But for me, it's good to be near God. Nearness to God, in other words... Nearness to God is the difference between life and death. Nearness to God is the source of everything that is good. It's the source of all true and lasting life. Do you see what he remembered? That God was for him even when he was forgetful. And what it was reminded him of is that he has nothing. He has nothing in heaven or on earth worthy of his desire besides God. My flesh and my heart may fail, verse 26 says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's got a new perspective, doesn't he? He's done overvaluing what other people have. He can take it, he can leave it. He's done undervaluing what it is to have God in your life. He can't do without this, though he take hold of everything else. Whom have I in heaven but thee? No one. What do I desire on earth besides thee? No one and nothing. So, so, so far, what I hope you're taking from this is that self-awareness is the key. When you experience envy, all of us are going to, right? It's going to happen to you today, tomorrow, the next day. It's going to always happen to you throughout your life. You're going to experience envy. What you should take from this psalm, the kind of self-awareness that you bring from this psalm into your experience of envy, is a memory of where envy always comes from. When you're on social media and you're browsing someone else's well-curated, happy life, you are overvaluing what they have that you don't. You are undervaluing what you have right now for the taking if you'll have it in Christ. This insight for us in, in where envy comes from leads us directly to the solution that this psalm puts in front of us. The problem we said is perspective. The solution is also in perspective. Envy always comes from a skewed perspective on the value of what other people have and a skewed perspective on the value of what it is to have God in your life. A new perspective, freedom from envy. The solution to this problem, it comes from a new perspective too. It comes when we're able to worship in community. I want to unpack that. It comes, solution for envy comes through worship, first of all, in community, second of all. And here's what I mean. you got to take on a new perspective on God first. You must come to see that God is your only portion forever. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Remember that was the way he started? God is good to the pure in heart. He started there, verse 1. God is good to the pure in heart. And the rest of the psalm unpacks how he doubted that for a while and why he doubted that for a while and how he came to see that that was still true. But remember what he starts with, pure in heart. Now we know what it is to be pure in heart. To be pure in heart is to want one thing. To have an unmixed desire, unmixed devotion. To want one thing. And he found his way to purity in heart. When? How did he see it? It's when he went into the sanctuary to worship. Verse 17. I was wearied by the task of trying to understand why things aren't equal. Why things aren't fair. Why the wicked have what the righteous don't. I was worn out by it. Tired of churning on that problem. I was worn out until until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's a, a shorthand for until I experienced God's presence until I turned my gaze from around me at all the things that other people have and looked up instead at who he is and what he offers to those who come to him in faith. It was through worship that his perspective was transformed. Go back to the confession that he makes in verses 13 and 14. What good is cleanness of heart, he says. Why have I kept my heart pure? Psalm 1 told me it would make things go well for me. I'd be a tree next to streams of water. I'd have plenty to drink. My leaves would never wither. Everything I'd do would prosper. It'd be like Midas, right? Just everything i touch, gold. Isn't that the point of cleanness of heart? Cleanness of hands? That's what he thought. What good was cleanness of heart, purity of heart, if it didn't get him a beautiful body? Or carefree life. The envy of all those who were looking at him. Now what he sees though, when he comes into the sanctuary, when he starts to worship the God who made him, when he starts to see himself through God's eyes, now he sees that all this stuff he was envying was never the point of purity of heart. This is never what God promised him. If he wanted those things, he didn't have to have a clean or a pure heart to begin with. Or he, rather, he did not have a clean or a pure heart to begin with. If what he wanted was what he hoped to get from God, the sleek and healthy body, the life free of trouble, no pangs until death, if that's what he wanted to begin with, then he never had the pure heart he thought he had. Because a pure heart is a heart that wants God above all else. His heart was always set, always divided, always dispersed among the things of this earth that were just a dream. He just didn't know it. Now he realizes a pure heart is one that loves God above all and in all. Material prosperity, the kind of things he was envying in the wicked, that was never what was offered to him from Psalm 1. He would misread it. That's not what it means to prosper in all that you do. The prosperity that Psalm 1 offers to the righteous, to the pure in heart who want God above all else, that prosperity is the prosperity of having the God who made you as your friend, as your advocate, as your joy and constant ally. That's the prosperity that Psalm 1 offered and now he knows it's there for the taking no matter what else might be true. To think that you could get Material prosperity from a heart that's purely devoted to God, its just there's no necessary connection there. He thought obedience equals prosperity, right? But the purity of heart that really matters, it doesn't connect back to any sort of thing you might enjoy in this life. Any more than, it doesn't make any more sense to wonder, I'm pure in heart, so why hasn't God given me more money? Then it makes sense for me to wonder, I brush my teeth twice a day, why is my hair still falling out? One is not connected to the other. It's a completely arbitrary connection. the, The point of purity in heart was never material prosperity. What was the point of purity in heart? A craving after the God who now makes himself available through worship. When all his envy melts away... The purity of heart that he's come to is one that sees God for who he is and wants God above all else. So when this psalmist says, truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart, now we know what he means. Not that God gives lives of carefree pleasure to all who are innocent or obedient. Not that God... Will give them lives that the wicked will envy here and now. No, he means God is good to the pure in heart because God gives to the pure in heart exactly what they want. He gives them Himself, His nearness, His friendship. For me, It is good to be near God, verse 28. That's what is good. God is good. Now does that mean that I can't enjoy or even long for other things on earth? No, it doesn't mean that. When am I supposed to enjoy my wife and my children? What about unaccompanied cello suites? Or a fully equipped banjo band? Or James Taylor solo? What about smoked pork ribs or beautiful mountains? Of course we love these things. Of course we do. But we love these things because they're gifts of the God that we love. We love them as an extension of Him and His goodness in our lives. We don't love them as ends in themselves. That turns God into something else. They are reflections of His love, His creativity, His power. It's not that we can't enjoy them or even long for them. But (laughs) we can't envy them. We definitely can't envy them. Because when we envy the good things of earth that other people enjoy that I don't, then we are absolutely, necessarily, without fail, in every single case, that we envy the good gifts that other people enjoy. We are treating those gifts as ends in themselves and God as valuable only as means to those ends. Every time we envy, every single time, our love is directed to something besides God. A desire for something besides Him. Or to use the psalmist language, we are falling short of His claim that there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Can we long for good things? Absolutely, as God's gifts. But any time we envy them, the moment we envy them, what we show is that we have a desire for something besides God. We know it can't be love for God that causes us to envy because, because God is infinite. He's an inexhaustible resource. Someone else having him as their treasure doesn't keep me from having him as my treasure. Envy depends on something being limited in its quantity. And God isn't. No one ever needs to envy somebody else's treasure in God. When God is your portion, no one else will ever be a threat to you. In fact, far from a threat to you, other people can be your allies in sharing the treasure that they already have. I've said the solution to envy is a new perspective. Worship in community. It starts with worship. We have to worship God for the value that he is and all other good things only as extensions of him or not at all. That's the first part of this new perspective, this solution to envy. The second part, though, is community. So what envy does typically is eat away at community. It's like a rot in the center of it. It keeps us from being vulnerable with each other. It keeps us from being honest with each other. We're either wishing we had what others had or wanting them to want what we have. Either way, we're putting up walls between us. Envy kills community. But when we treat God as our portion forever and love Him more than anything else He might ever give us, then our friends become not threats to us, but allies. Did you notice where the psalmist ends in verse 28? He wants to be near to God. He's made the Lord God his refuge. But that was never just about him. Why? Why? that I may tell of all your works. He's drawn near to God so that he can bring others near to God with him. He's not just looking up. He's looking up first, but then, after looking up, based on what he's seen, he looks out. And he says, come join me. The feast is good. It's rich. It's never-ending. It's all yours. If you'll come and take it. He lives to tell of God's works because in community, our worship only deepens. It helps me to see you worshiping. It helps me know that there's something there for the taking if I'll follow you there. It helps me know there's some truth to all the things we sing about or that the Bible tells about or the kinds of things we talk about in our sermons on Sunday mornings. I need to see you guys having fun, seeing seeing your hearts quicken, stirred up, your passions evoked by the simple every week pleasures of listening to God's word and responding to it through our songs and praying together to the God who always hears us. I need to see you treasuring God so that I can treasure him too. Now community is no threat. Now it helps us. God is not a fixed commodity, friends. and That means that true satisfaction and joy and prosperity is not a zero-sum game. Where for me to win, you have to lose. Now, now, having this treasure helps others have it, and vice versa. And that ultimately is our calling. When we worship together each week, and in our relationships with each other throughout the week, our calling in this relationship, these are deployments in each other's lives to help one another worship God, to help one another properly evaluate God, and to see the other things in life for what they are. Dreams or a mirage if you try to rest on them. But wonderful, delicious appetizers if they just whet your appetite for him. And the feast that he has prepared. Father, we want to do this work together. We want to help one another. We want to encourage one another. We want not to envy one another. We hate what that does to us. Would you please, by your spirit, give us the same kind of transformation and perspective that you gave this man? We pray, Father, that you would do the work you did in him in each one of us. Help us to avoid believing lies about the value of this, the things of this world. Help us to see them for what they are and to love them and enjoy them as gifts from your hand. And please help us never to settle for a view of you that is less than what you are. We know that when you appear, we will be like you. We will see you as you are. We know that that day has not come, and so we are undervaluing you no matter what. But we don't want to settle for that. We want a hope that purifies us even as you are pure. We want to hope for more, for a deeper and more satisfying experience of your presence in our lives. So I pray that you would both quicken us Encourage us, deepen our hopes, and then satisfy them. In Jesus' name, amen.